Disruption is a big theme for investors these days, and you've heard us talk about disruption a lot on this podcast. Whether it's the impact of blockchain or how the retail and automobile sectors are changing, disruption is almost omnipresent. But today, I'd like to take a step back and talk about disruption more broadly. Welcome to Bernstein Insights, where we cover trends in the economy, markets, and asset allocation for long-term investors. To help give me this bird's-eye view of disruption, I'd like to bring in my colleague, Moira McLaughlin, Senior Portfolio Manager for Bernstein in our Miami office, who's done a lot of work on disruption and has joined this podcast before. Moira, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Matt. Happy to be here. So disruption is a big theme. That's unquestionable. And I want to talk about investing in and around disruption. But before we do that, let's talk about today's level of interest in disruption. Why so much interest in this topic today? Well, as you know, disruption is nothing new. If you think back through economic history, there are countless examples of disruption. But certainly the pace of change today is dizzying. And I think that's a big part of why there's so much interest in the topic. The maturity of the Internet has dramatically eased a number of hurdles uh, to innovation and disruption. For example, the Internet infrastructure really allows new entrants to launch capital-like businesses. And for those ideas that gain traction, the Internet gives new entrants a direct route to consumers, decreasing the cost to acquire customers and accelerating the rate of product adoption. Beyond the Internet, we've got emerging technologies in areas like artificial intelligence, machine learning, digital analytics, connectivity, coupled with ever-increasing processing power. And that, that is really fueling exponential change. A lot of people are referring to a combination of these factors today as the fourth industrial revolution. I'm reminded, I guess, for some reason of the late 1990s. Michael Lewis wrote a book, The New New Thing. This feels like the new new thing. As investors, should we be wondering if perhaps we've seen this movie before? Well, I think it's true that the level of disruption today and the excitement about disruption today does rival some of that excitement in the dot-com era. But, you know, of course, there are important differences. And in hindsight, most investors really remember that period for irrational valuations. And, of course, we see some pockets of what some people might deem irrational exuberance, mostly in the private markets today. Broadly speaking, we don't think that today's equity market valuations are stretched by any means. So we don't want to draw too close the link between the two periods. It is true, though, I think, in some ways that the lessons of Internet 1.0, if we can call that period, that are instructive for a couple of different reasons. So fair point on uh, valuations and not making too much of a link between today's disruptors and those in the late 1990s and how some of them turned out. This is a podcast where we talk about investing. And, and I know that you and your team have developed a very thoughtful framework for investors. Also, I think, though, for entrepreneurs who want to invest or engage in disruption. Let's walk through your three-part framework. Let's take it step by step. But what's the first part of this framework for engaging in or investing in disruption today? Well, first of all, importantly, I think it's 
key to keep in mind that in initial disruptors don't always win. They can have tremendous power and often do have tremendous power in reshaping the industries in which they operate, um, but they may ultimately not win. I think we can think about some of those early web-based retailers um, that you know their, their impact is still being felt today. Retail is never going to be the same. But even among those that enjoyed initial success, many of them failed. There was a huge shakeout, obviously. Social media, I think, is another good example. I don't know how many of our listeners remember MySpace or Friendster, but they really were initially, they got the ball rolling in terms of moving eyeballs online, as it were. And of course, today, that space is completely dominated by by Facebook and some of its other properties like Instagram. Yeah, I think a fair point on also on, on Facebook, MySpace, and Friendster. I don't have an account for uh, Facebook, nor did I have one for MySpace or Friendster, so I don't know what the big takeaway is for that. Give us a couple more examples examples of companies that existed in the early days of uh, the internet that didn't actually end up making it as a viable entity going forward? Well, smartphones, they came a little bit later, but I think they're also a pretty good example. Palm and BlackBerry had significant first mover advantages in that category. Today, Palm is completely out of the picture. There are a few Blackberries around still, but I still largely- have mine. You, oh, you do. I was going to say they're largely irrelevant, so scratch that part <laughs> from the record. Um, but, but then, you know, after the next leg, really, in terms of evolution of the space, uh, was, was dominated by Nokia and, and Motorola, overtook those first two movers. And, of course, today the category is completely dominated by Apple and Samsung. Napster also comes to mind, right? Uh, the, the, uh, the early version of Spotify and, and iTunes. So as I think through this, the question that comes to mind is, is there then no advantage to being a first mover? No, I wouldn't say no advantage. Gaining initial market share is sometimes a major advantage. And of course, that's the rationale behind that land grab you often see, especially in new and rapidly developing markets. But it can be a high risk proposition. It's hard to unseat an incumbent and technological innovation in particular rarely happens in a straight line. Go a little bit further on that final point there that innovation rarely happens in a straight line. What do you mean? Well, certainly initially capital constraints, lack of scale can make it hard for startups to, to, to gain traction. On the technology front, you often see promising early developments later leapfrogged by another competitor who improves upon that idea. Again, think back to that example in the smartphone industry. So what's an investor to do? Should they wait on the sidelines, wait for the dust to settle and maybe miss out on some of that initial upside? I think that depends a little bit on overall risk positioning and risk appetite. We've got to recognize that investing in initial disruptors is a high-risk, potentially high-reward proposition. Um, There are a couple of different ways you can approach it. You can spread your bets. uh, You can invest in the picks and shovels, as it were. Um, And then another critical piece, regardless of whether or not you're choosing to directly participate, You ignore disruptors at your own peril. The first movers may not always win, but they have tremendous power to reshape their industries. You have to focus on what disruptive forces mean for industry profit pools. What does X development mean for overall industry profitability? And how will those profits be divided among industry players? So if the first lesson of your framework is that initial disruptors don't always win, what's the second? Well, the second is really the flip side of the first. Just as initial disruptors don't always win, incumbents don't always lose. Think about how wrong so many investors were about the so-called old economy stocks during the dot-com era. 
incumbents have plenty of advantages. What are those, I think, of um, scale and financial or balance sheet strength? That's absolutely right. They often have very deep pockets, strong market positions. They can keep recalibrating their response until they get it right. But management needs to understand the threat and be willing to adapt the business model to remain relevant. And this sometimes means substantial investment, which may impact near-term profitability. Amazon and Walmart are probably great examples here. Amazon, a very early entrant into uh, online retailing. Walmart wasn't uh, a quick adopter or necessarily willing to invest meaningfully to compete against Amazon. Is that a fair example for this point that you're making? Yes, I think that's a very good example. Walmart's first forays into online were half-hearted. They didn't leverage the strengths of Walmart's business model. In as recently as 2011, Walmart's e-commerce revenues were only about 1% of their global sales, about a tenth the size of Amazon's sales, despite being almost 10 times bigger overall. And then more recently, as recently really as 2011, they really shifted from defense to offense. They made significant investments in online search and analytics. They went on a multi-billion dollar e-commerce acquisition spree, and they completely revamped their online marketplace. And it's really starting to have a significant impact. So if incumbents like Walmart don't always lose, what's the big takeaway for investors? Well, I think you have to focus on management's response to disruptive threats. Being slow off the mark doesn't mean out of the running, as this Walmart example shows. But watch for companies that are either dismissive of disruptive threats or make an active decision to keep doing what they've been doing because they don't want to cannibalize their traditional business. Classic example of that is Kodak. They famously invented the digital camera in the 60s, but then they sat on it because they didn't want to cannibalize their film business. More recently, the approach of traditional automakers uh, to electric vehicles, they've been very, very slow off the mark, in large part, many people believe, because electric vehicles are a money-losing proposition in the early years. But of course, not establishing leadership today could cost them longer term. So let me just summarize the first two lessons. First being initial disruptors don't always win. We gave the example of MySpace. We gave the example of Napster. Second point to your framework being that incumbents don't always lose. You gave the great example of of Walmart against Amazon. What's the final lesson for investors trying to engage in disruption or even for entrepreneurs that are trying to get into the business with a viable or hopefully viable entity? Well, the final lesson, I think, is the most important one. The path to profitability matters. Investors will often fund unprofitable companies in the early stage of their development, but ultimately we have to see that path to profitability. So the pace of product adoption matters. That's going to drive revenues, and that's going to be critical for access to capital. There were lots of botched Internet startups who ran out of capital, right? The lifeline was pulled from then, who later were resurrected as profitable and ultimately highly successful ventures in, in Web 2.0, if you will. I guess what uh, Webvan, the early online grocery company, is um, a good example here. With all the online grocery that's starting out again today, maybe their biggest mistake was that they were too early on this front? Well, they certainly were too early. Two decades later, I think 
e-commerce and grocery is still in its infancy, as, as you recently discussed. Uh, so online grocery and home delivery was clearly an idea ahead of its time. Internet penetration then was just in its infancy. But WebVan made a lot of mistakes. And this gets to that point about the path to profitability matters. As you talked about with Greg recently, grocery logistics are incredibly complicated. They're expensive. And in contrast to other segments of retail, having a network of physical stores is actually an advantage. WebVan raised a billion dollars. They set about building this entire logistics channel um, and delivery infrastructure. It was expensive. It was ineffective. It was wrong on many, many levels. There was no path to profitability. And as soon as investors realized that, they pulled the plug and that was that. You know, our business is all about uh, trade-offs. And to get something, you have to give something up often enough. And and I guess that's one of the takeaways here for investors. You have to give promising companies with good ideas some runway, but also you have to make sure that there is eventually some way that they can become profitable and ongoing. That's absolutely right. Big lesson here is don't be dazzled by disruption. Look beyond the veneer of innovation. Think about where you are on the hype curve. Use in-depth fundamental research to really understand the ultimate impact on industry dynamics and profit pools, not only in those industries that are most directly affected, but also in adjacent industries. The knock-on effects of disruption in one industry are not always immediately obvious. And of course, we always want to view these big sort of longer term themes like disruption through the eyes of individual companies. The focus of our research needs to be on what macro themes mean for individual company profitability and earnings power over time. Moira, we've uh, unfortunately we've run out of time, so we're going to have to leave it here. But you've given our listeners a lot to think about, certainly those who are trying to invest in or engage in some form or fashion in disruption. So we'll just summarize the three points to your framework. First, initial disruptors don't always win. Second one, which kind of was an aha for me, uh, second one being that the incumbents don't always lose. We gave that good example of, of Walmart. And then finally, your very important point, that the path to profitability Matter. So again, for all of our listeners out there that think about disruption on a fairly regular basis or irregular basis, uh, Moira and her team have developed this very nice framework to think through investing in this constantly fluid channel of our business. So thanks very much for listening, everybody. If you'd like to learn more, you can read our disruption white paper at the link in the podcast description. And you can also find us on Twitter at Bernstein PWM or Send us an email with your thoughts, questions, or feedback at insights at Bernstein.com. Bernstein, making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.